Well, good morning. We're mixing things up a little bit this morning, no scripture reading. We're doing the book of Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job all in one sermon, and we, we thought that might be a little difficult to read all of those books, so, but I will read plenty from those books as we move along. But let me ask you a question. Let's begin with this. Have you ever been in a situation where you felt like you did everything right, you gave it your all, you followed protocol, and it didn't turn out so well for you? Ever have something major go wrong in your life that you felt you just really didn't deserve? And though you wouldn't say it because you don't let your kids say it, in your mind you were going, this isn't fair? I have. Ever felt like the cards of life were stacked against you and you just couldn't catch a break? And have you ever questioned where God was in the middle of all that? Well, this morning I want to bring some perspective to these questions by looking at the wisdom writings of the Old Testament, and I want to get us going with a story. Many of you met my dad. He attended this church for a year before he died last fall, and my dad was a great auto mechanic, and he owned an automotive service in my hometown of Indianapolis, Indiana, and a lot of my childhood memories are connected in some way or another to dad's business. It was a huge part of our life. And back in the 60s and 70s, dad was the only guy on the south side of town who worked on foreign cars because they were really foreign back then. Sometimes parts would take four, five, six weeks to get. And so in order for my dad to get his customers back on the road, he often used this product called J.B. Weld. It was a liquid steel It's still around today. It comes in two tubes. The black tube had the the liquid steel or the black epoxy resin, and the other contained the white cream hardener. And when you mix these two together over just a little bit of time, they harden, and their properties are almost, not quite, but almost the same as steel. You can drill it. You can file it. You can even thread it. And I can tell you that my dad used this effectively on many occasions. Well, I've come to realize over the years in regard to questions about circumstances not turning out so well, about the fairness of life, and many of the troubles that we face, that if our search for answers only takes us to the book of Proverbs, if that's our only source of godly wisdom, If we read that book and conclude that the wise person or the righteous person always prospers and are always blessed in this life, or assume that they never do the right thing and have it turn out wrong, or if we assume that to be in God's favor means that, well, everything will go as planned, well, not only would we be wrong, but we would be discouraged. And in fact, many people are discouraged because the effect of that kind of wisdom in the face of many of life's difficult problems, problems that some of you are facing even this morning, would be kind of like my dad taking that black epoxy resin and applying it to fix a car without adding the hardener to it. It just wouldn't work. It would remain a gooey, runny, ineffective mess. So what I want to try and do this morning, and that word try is important here, I want to try and mix together three tubes of biblical wisdom. Proverbs, 
Ecclesiastes, and the book of Job. I'll spend most of my time examining the ingredients of each of the tubes, and then at the end, we'll try and mix them together. But I think together, these three books provide a rock-solid foundation for all of life. So let's get started with the book of Proverbs, which teaches us, you get what you deserve. You get what you deserve. There is order in God's world. That's what the book of Proverbs is all about. You reap what you sow. You get out of life what you put into it. You get what's coming to you. Wise planning and wise decisions and hard work and diligence, it pays off. It pays off in prosperity and plenty and contentment. Laziness and indecision and a lack of planning and foolish speculation, well, that pays off too. It pays off in poverty and struggle and hardship and strife. Proverbs 13.4, lazy people want much but get little but those who work hard will prosper. The righteous, or the wise in the book of the Proverbs, and they're the same thing, really, is the one who walks in and pursues the way of wisdom. And the fool, or the unrighteous, or the wicked, again, all the same thing in this book, is the one who disregards the way of wisdom. Proverbs 15.32, whoever ignores instruction despises himself, but he who listens to reproof gains intelligence. Or Proverbs 11.8, the righteous is delivered from trouble and the wicked walks into it instead. So there's this strong theme in Proverbs that says there are certainties in life. Now, we've mentioned this over the course of this short little series on the wisdom books, that the book of Proverbs is not a book of promises, but rather it is a collection of time-tested observations. And what Proverbs teaches us as a whole is this, there is order in God's creation, and the wise person will recognize that order and operate within it. Certain godly, wise behavior will bring about certain desirable results. Hard work and diligence pays off in financial gain. Discernment and wisdom in choosing a spouse pays off in happiness and fulfillment and more. Discipline in eating and exercise leads to greater health and enjoyment of life. Kind words, self-control, the absence of anger... All of these lead naturally to mental stability, peace of heart, and meaningful, deep relationships. There is, and we can't get away from this, there is a cause and effect principle in God's universe. And we know this just by looking at the natural world or the scientific world, like Newton's law of gravity. What goes up must come down. I can't expect to jump off of the roof out here and not land on the ground, probably with a broken leg or something. And we see it even in like the changing of the seasons, which are having a hard time changing right now, right? I mean, summer is hanging on for dear life. It wasn't that impressive in the middle of it, but now it is really giving us something to look forward to, 90-degree days. Just what Psalm 104 says, he made the moon to mark the seasons. The sun knows it's time for setting, right? There's order in God's world. 
And equally sure, the principles that govern man's relationship with God, his fellow man, and the world around him. That's what Proverbs is about. There are right and wrong ways to do things. Hard work and diligence is right. Laziness and carelessness is just wrong. Justice and equity is right. Injustice and inequity is wrong. Kind words, encouraging words, thoughtful words, truthful words, that's right. Gossip, slander, lies, all wrong, always wrong. And with right actions come rewards. And with wrong actions come consequences. Paul even mentions this in the New Testament. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You get what you deserve. Life from this perspective is fair, and so you get what's coming to you. Plain and simple. Now, looking at the book of Proverbs and its original purpose, being written to a son as a sort of training manual for the young, that while the wisdom in Proverbs is timeless, all of us need it, it's for every age group, it's especially, I think, helpful for young guys like these two sitting here. And I would recommend it to all of our young men and women because it's in the days of your youth that many of life's major decisions are made. Who to marry, your education, career path decisions. But I think more important than that, it's in your youth and your latter adolescence and your early adult years that you are learning and laying down patterns of responding to the world around you that will stick with you, some might say haunt you, for the rest of your life. Proverbs has a lot to teach us about how to live rightly in our world, and we need to take note. And yet Proverbs is not. As strong as that sounds, it's not the final word on wisdom. And there are many situations that run absolutely counter to what it teaches us. And so we have to move beyond the wisdom of Proverbs, move beyond the order of Proverbs to what is also an observable truth in the world around us. You see, while there are certainties in God's creation, there is definitely chaos and turmoil. So while the book of Proverbs teaches us that you get what you deserve, our second tube of wisdom, Ecclesiastes, points out that sometimes you don't get what you deserve. Sin has brought chaos into God's world. You work hard and you plan and you seek counsel and everything falls apart. You do it all right and it ends up all wrong. You buy a house, your dream house, and a year later it's worth $100,000 less than what you paid for it. You work hard for your employer, you give your all, you do everything they ask and more. And then you get laid off. Not because you failed, but because of the economy or a plant in China or Mexico or something like that. You always exercise and you eat right and your cholesterol just super high and you end up having a heart attack. You pray and seek God and you try and walk humbly, 
before him in faith and repentance. You give yourself to your church, you tithe, you participate, you even witness, you're special. And of course, you know that you're not earning salvation by doing these things. But why is it that it often seems that the struggles that Proverbs says comes to the person who does the wrong thing end up happening to you? Well, the teacher in Ecclesiastes wrote about this. He said, there is a vanity, and that word after Mike's message last week will have a new meaning for us, surely, a good meaning, but there's a vanity that takes place on earth, something we can't get our our hands around, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous, Ecclesiastes 8.14. You get what's coming to someone else. You reap what someone else has sown. You don't get what you deserve. Yes. You see, although Proverbs points to an observable norm, Ecclesiastes points to an observable departure from that norm. Proverbs points to order. Ecclesiastes points to chaos. The wicked take what the righteous deserve and the righteous end up with what belongs to the wicked. Sometimes the good die young and the wicked live to be really old. This is an aberration from the truth of Proverbs, right? Sometimes the righteous suffer, often the righteous suffer, while the wicked live in apparent happiness. Again, an anomaly against the book of Proverbs. It's as if Proverbs says, life comes with a guarantee Follow the instructions on the box and everything will work out fine. It'll go well for you. But right in the midst of that, Ecclesiastes raises its voice in in what seems to be a contradiction to Proverbs by saying, yes, that's true, but sometimes without cause and without warning and certainly without explanation, that guarantee shall be voided. Really? Can you do that? Yeah. And in that moment, from an earthly perspective, we really can say, life isn't fair. Take our example of the order of the seasons. We know there is a time to plant, usually in the spring, and a time to harvest, usually in the fall. Sometimes the farmer plants and works hard and does everything right, and yet the weather doesn't cooperate. The average rainfall is not average, and a drought wipes out his hard work and his profit. This is chaos replacing order, and it's unpredictable. Ecclesiastes 7.15, in this meaningless life of mine, I've seen both of these, a righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. We could take this further with the recent destruction of hurricanes Harvey and Irma and now Maria. And while I think a case, a strong case could be made for the effect of man's sin bringing chaos into God's world, and while there probably were people who suffered in these storms who were not walking in righteousness, wicked people who deserved judgment... I think we can rightly assume that many, if not most, of the people impacted by this storm did not deserve any more than 
we do, or would in Chicago, did not deserve to have their lives shattered and disrupted and turned upside down. And beyond these seemingly random examples from nature, we see this principle playing out around us in our own lives. Consider parenting. No one parents perfectly, but some parents do a very good job in disciplining and training. And they do so with humble, gracious, loving hearts. And yet sometimes children raised in genuinely godly homes choose to stray from the path of life, choose to reject the God of their parents. While other children, not trained well at all, some children growing up in very wicked, evil homes, choose the path of life. This is chaos replacing order, and we cannot anticipate it because it's not the norm. And there's a huge sense of frustration that you feel. Some of you expressed this. I think Mike did a good job of getting rid of some of the frustration for us. But there's a frustration that comes from reading the book of Ecclesiastes. It can kind of take you to that low place, if you know what I mean. And the meaninglessness that the writer sees in every person and every endeavor, even in nature itself, can be overwhelming to us. And maybe you felt that way. But in the midst of it, as, as Mike did last week, looking more closely at the book, we find grace in it. Mike highlighted last week that we should see all of life as a gift and look for grace in all of life. But I want to point out a big grace that shows up in Ecclesiastes. Because you and me are personal benefactors of the truth that sometimes you get what is coming to someone else. The truth that sometimes you don't get what you deserve. And this may surprise you, maybe not, but Psalm 103 The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. He doesn't treat us like he should like justice would demand. He doesn't give us what we deserve. The prophet Isaiah, writing of Jesus, said, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. The gospel, the story of God's redeeming grace, means that we don't get what we deserve. We deserve eternal death and damnation. And yet we, being those who believe in the message of Christ, the message of the gospel, we get life. We get eternal life. We get joy. We get eternal joy and pleasure as part of God's family. Is it fair? 
Not really. I mean, that's why it's unmerited favor. I mean, is it justice? Well, yes and no. But certainly no in the human sense of the word justice. It's not typically considered justice if someone else is penalized for my mistake. That's the gospel. And it is amazing grace because Jesus Christ willingly decided to redeem for himself a people by taking on himself what they deserve, the punishment that should have been ours. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake, God made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, the righteous one got what was coming to the wicked ones, and that's you and me. And the wicked ones, you and me, got what is coming or was coming to the righteous one, Jesus. And when you frame it in that way, it sounds what? A lot like the book of Ecclesiastes. It's big grace. Which brings us to our third book, Job. If Proverbs says that you get what you deserve and Ecclesiastes tells us that sometimes you don't get what you deserve, Job kind of begins to tie it all together by telling us you get what God determines. God directs both order and chaos to accomplish his purposes in his world. Ultimately, God decides who gets what. If Proverbs speaks to order, Ecclesiastes to chaos in the midst of order, what does Job speak to? What contribution to wisdom does he make? Well, the book of Job tells us that God's hand directs it all. When we get what we deserve, God directs it. When we don't get what we deserve, God directs that too. Quick overview of the book, and if you weren't here a couple weeks ago when we did a little sermon on the book of Job. I encourage you to listen to that. But Job is a blameless man who serves the Lord faithfully and does what is right. He is a wise man in all the ways the book of Proverbs puts forth. He has embraced wisdom and he has turned away from folly. Job fears the Lord and he's benefited from his wise behavior, just like Proverbs speaks of. And so he's prospered, he's prosperous. And then without his knowledge, Satan challenges Job's faithfulness before God, saying, well, no wonder he fears you. You keep blessing him. Take away the blessings, he will curse you to your face. Now, we're not told the significance or the reason for this challenge, but we're told that God says, I'll take that challenge. And in one day, Job loses all his possessions, and his ten children are killed when the house that they're Feasting at collapses from high winds. And yet we learn in spite of all this that Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. And so Satan comes again and he says, well, hey, if you take his health away, then he will curse you. And so that happens. He's given permission. And the next 35 chapters as Job is covered with boils, his health failing, are a back and forth debate between Job and three of his close friends. And finally, a young man named Elihu. And the topic is, why is Job suffering? What is the cause? And the approach and the conclusions of those 35 chapters especially that are drawn by Job's friends are simply to apply the book of Proverbs. 
look, if you do the right thing, it always turns out right. It didn't turn out right. You're hiding something from us. Come on, repent and God will restore you. And this is the application of the cause and effect principles that Proverbs teaches. Job, you're in trouble, man. You had to sin. And the debate rages on as his three friends pile up their arguments. Look, God judges the wicked, not the righteous. Quit playing games, Job. Give up, repent. But Job vehemently denies their claims that he's been unrighteous. Job 27. As God lives, who has taken away my right, and the Almighty who has made my soul bitter, as long as my breath is in me, And the Spirit of God is in my nostrils. My lips will not speak falsehood, and my tongue will not utter deceit. Far be it from me to say that you are right. Till I die, I will not put away my integrity from me. I hold fast my righteousness and will not let it go. My heart does not reproach me for any of my days. And Job defends to the end his assessment that his suffering is not the result of any sin committed. It's an Ecclesiastes moment, clearly. And we learn at the end of the book that Job is absolutely right and his friends were wrong. And in the midst of the debate, one question rises above the rest. And the question is not, surprisingly, Why do the righteous suffer? But rather, where is wisdom? The reason that's the question is because, well, the wisdom of Proverbs seems to be failing them. Job 28, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, And to turn away from evil is understanding. Job never gets an answer to the question of why he had to suffer. He certainly wasn't even given the information about Satan and God and the challenge that was put forth. And that's a huge part of the point of Job for me. In my life and in your life, there is so much happening behind the scenes that God has not allowed us to see He is directing both order and chaos in our lives to bring about his plan. And so ultimately, the question about wisdom becomes an issue of trust, right? And in the midst of his struggles, Job sees that the one who is allowing his suffering is ultimately his advocate. Job 19.25, For I know that my Redeemer lives And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. Job says, I know that God lives. The one who gives me back my life. And eventually, he will take his stand on the earth. And I'll see him. And even though I suffer now, I will see God myself with my own eyes. And that is the day I long for. That is the day I am placing my trust in. What a trust from Job. He's honest about his sufferings. We've talked about this. He's honest about his feelings in the midst of his suffering. He's honest about his fears, and yet all while never cursing or blaming God. Where is wisdom? Wisdom is established in a compelling trust in the goodness of God. 
Got to see this. Wisdom is established at this highest level in a compelling trust in the goodness of God. If I can't trust God, where else can I go, right? You see, Job does not contradict Proverbs, nor does he fully embrace the hopelessness or what we feel is the hopelessness of Ecclesiastes. But he works to develop much more clearly for us the meaning of wisdom in terms of the fear of the Lord and our need to trust that the God of the universe will make all things really work together for our good. That though there is mystery in his providence, his faithfulness can never be denied. Proverbs unveils a knowable order in God's kingdom. Job reveals that there is still so much that we do not know. And instead of trying to figure it out, instead of thinking that we could understand it if he explained it to us, we're called to trust So three tubes. I think Job's kind of like the the hardener in all of this. So we've described each tool. I want to start mixing them together on how we should approach life with this wisdom. And let's start with Proverbs. It's a very simple application. Because there is order, do what's right. Do the right thing. Turn away from evil. Pursue godliness and holiness. Get a job. Work hard. Don't be lazy. Don't be a fool. Learn what the Lord requires of you. Learn how God has ordered his world and give yourself wholeheartedly to it. There is a deed-outcome relationship. You do reap what you sow. You can't get around that truth. There is a noble and discernible order, so be wise. More often than not, in the day-to-day things of life, God will order, will allow order to play out in his world and in your life, right? Don't anticipate a bailout. Not from the government, certainly not from God. So when things don't go well, when your marriage is rocky, your kid's crazy, your finances a mess, your health a wreck, don't be afraid to look in the mirror, right? Don't be afraid to take responsibility for your problems. Don't be afraid to repent of your failures and turn from your folly. And get back on the path of wisdom. When we get what we deserve and it's not good, we should pursue God's grace through confession and repentance. Proverbs anticipates this, and it's part of what it means to be wise. Proverbs 9, 8, and 9. So don't bother correcting Mockers, they will only hate you, but correct the wise and they will love you. Instruct the wise and they will be even wiser. Teach the righteous and they will learn even more. Throughout the book, we learn that wisdom loves correction and reproof. When the wise trip, they look down and their shoelaces are untied, they don't blame the sidewalk, right? I mean, you know, it's kind of like, how did that happen? They don't pursue excuses. No, they humbly acknowledge their error. They tie their shoes and they get back up. So do what's right. It's foundational 
to being a wise person. But as we've said, wisdom in this world demands more if it's going to be solid. So let's add in some of our second tube, Ecclesiastes, which teaches us because there is chaos in our world, look for grace. Sin has damaged order in God's world. We see it all around us. And were it not for grace, we would be like the teacher who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes. We might be given over to moments of despair, to hopelessness, maybe even to a bleak outlook on life. And yet there's a great truth that emerges over the pages of Scripture about grace. And for our purposes this morning, one simple line from the Apostle Paul may sum it up best. But where sin increased, grace abounded even more. When sin is reeking or or wrecking your life, when it's building chaos in your world, when the order that should be isn't, look for God's grace. It's coming. I really believe this. I assure you, it will come. God is all about redeeming people and situations. Over the course of my preaching here at Trinity, I've mentioned some of the difficulties in my life, a particular difficult and dark situation. And as I struggled through a particular dark moment in my life that seemed to be unfair, as I wrestled with that, not only did I see God's grace in moments of light coming down, but I also realized that he was redeeming and restructuring my world to see him more clearly. He was changing me. It was a grand work of his grace to conform me even more into the image of his son. And could there be any better kindness than that? No, right? I know you're thinking yes, (laughs) but no. There could be no greater kindness, no sweeter grace. So in moments of difficulty, even moments of difficulty that you've brought on yourself, look for grace. Look for what God is up to because he's always up to something in the lives of his people. He's always working out all things as he directs both order and chaos. He's working out all things for our good. So look for grace. Keep your eye open for grace. The two tubes of wisdom, we've mixed them together a little bit, but they're still a little spongy. They don't feel super solid, and so we need to squeeze in a little bit of Job here, which teaches us this. Because God directs both order and chaos, we must learn to trust. There's a story in the New Testament, the Gospel of John, about a man born blind. Jesus' disciples had a Proverbs understanding of things, a cause and effect view of the world. And we read in John 9 that as he passed by, he saw a blind man, a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents but that the works of God might be displayed in him. I think this passage resonates with the book of Job. Job's hardships, all his calamities, all the things that he endured were not directly tied to him, 
They were not the result of sin. And I believe ultimately, they had God's glory in mind. I can't explain that to you. I can't tell you how that works. I can't, I can't tell you how losing his possessions and his children and his honor, how that brings God's glory, or how you balance the suffering of Job that he endured with the glory God received in Job's righteous response. I can't do it. It's a mystery. God's providential rule over his world is a mystery, but I can tell you that Job illustrates very dramatically that a full understanding of the reason for the difficult and painful events in our life is not necessary in order to be able to trust God fully. As a matter of fact, Job teaches us that trust is getting comfortable with mystery. Oh, man. Trust is getting comfortable with mystery. This isn't blind trust, not at all. That's not what I'm saying. Don't misread me. Rather, it's trust in a God who has proved himself over and over and over to be faithful. And for the Christian, those who have a fuller understanding of the links God would go to redeem mankind, we have all the more reason to learn to trust. As Paul said in Romans 8, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he he not also with him graciously give us all things? If we can't trust in the God who gave us his son, if we can't trust in the God who would die to see us live, if we can't trust in the God who stepped out of eternity into our finite mess and gave himself to rescue us from sin and destruction, if we can't trust him, where else are we going to go, right? What are our options? I'm afraid it leaves us with nothing. God understands the struggle to trust in the midst of pain. He's not unaware of your conflicted heart and your troubled soul. But I want to encourage you, turn to him. Trust him. In the mystery of his providence, he will work wonders in your life. So here we have it, three tubes of wisdom, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Job. Do what's right, look for grace, learn to trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word provides a firm foundation from which we can live our lives. It brings a stability and a hope and a a ballast as we encounter all kinds of difficulties and trials and temptations. As we live in a world where order still exists, but chaos is obviously running loose. I thank you that your word is true and solid. 
more importantly, I thank you that you are faithful and true and that we can place our trust fully in you and what you have done for us in the son of your the death of your son Jesus Christ. So Father, help us to do what's right. Help us to look for grace and teach us what it means to trust in you. Amen.